Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show is a continuation of our series on building community in the Catholic Church in particular. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Clara Gagan, who is an old hand on the podcast and has joined us in other discussions. Welcome, Clara. Thanks, Peter. Great to be back. Indeed. And this is a topic that's dear to our hearts. We've had many discussions over the years about how this kind of thing works in practice because it's a very practical thing in terms of building community. Lots of people are, are throwing theory around and that's necessary. We need to think hard about these things. But often our listeners and, and the ordinary parish parishioners are thinking, what does this look like in practice? Because a lot of the theories involve big, you know, movements of people and money and stuff which don't we don't have access to at the local level let's let's get down to business i mean we last time we spoke to you you were talking about forming intentional disciples and and the impact that could have on the local parish but again it sounds like a big program to the average person you were telling me just before we came on air about a a focus which seems to be germinating in the in your work with the bishops conference is that right well, yes, um, that's a few conversations I've had with members of the Liturgy Commission. I'm with the Commission for Evangelization, Laity and Ministry, which I call the Commission for Everything. And <laughs> it overlaps into a whole lot of other areas. Um, yep. Well, yes. Is it a catch-all? They throw you everything that doesn't fit everywhere else? I can't answer on, on air. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. We can leave that in, by the way. It's <laughs> a testimony to your competence, Clara. The bishops have a sense of humour. <laughs> but, but, yeah. They are rumoured to have a sense of humour, yes. <laughs> yeah, but look, we're, we're doing a lot of work with other commissions simply because there is an overlap. You know, you can't really separate liturgy from evangelisation and you can't separate um, marriage and family from laity and so on so we do try you would hope not wouldn't you no that's right you'd hope that they interact yeah we do joke that we sort of have evangelization youth and women and marriage and men are over in another commission yes yes interesting but anyway we yeah we do work collaboratively yes and and one of the issues that we've been discussing is you know possible future conferences and you know how whether we do them face-to-face or online or hybrid models, but we were talking about the crossover between liturgy and evangelisation, and I think really the crossover is the priest makes Christ present on the altar and the rest of us, baptised Christians, have the obligation to make Christ present in the world. Now, let's pick this apart a little bit. We've had a podcast with Father Sam Lynch on how liturgy brings, you know, the people to Christ and Christ to the people. But what you're talking about is once we've received this grace from God and we're, and we're setting forth and what happens the rest of the week or even even within the liturgy sometimes, how do we welcome each other? How do we bring Christ to each other and to the world in that time? But that's exactly right. And, you know, a lot of I think we need to reflect a little bit on the, the commissioning that happens at the end of every Mass where we are told to bring what we have just received to the world. And for a lot of us, we sort of get back in the car and drive off to something else and we get embroiled in the, the ordinary mundane aspects of life and that doesn't remain very much at the fore. I have to admit, 
Clara, that in my worst days, I, I feel like, yay, obligation complete. I am a good Catholic. I've, <laughs> I've had my mass on a Sunday and off I go. Um, and that's a, I have to admit, that's a worst day scenario. I've at oh, least ticked that box. I, I think that's an interesting comment you make. And that language of obligation. I think when we talk about a Sunday obligation, once we've fulfilled our hour, that's it. And there was an interesting <laughs> survey done in the States where different denominations were asked how long they spent in church. And a lot of Pentecostals spent 10 hours in church and the Catholics yes. spent one hour and the Catholics... Yeah, if you're lucky, if they don't leave early. <laughs> and they have to not talk after Mass because you've got to make room in the car park for the next Mass. Well, in the early church, I was reading documents. Um, actually, it's in the Book of Acts. They talk about how long the various uh, Eucharists went for. And, in fact, one of them, Peter was preaching, I think it was Peter, was preaching so long. In fact, the Greek is quite ironic. It says he went on and on. And then someone actually fell asleep and fell out of the first floor window and died. He went oh. down, raised them from the dead. They came back upstairs and finished the mass. <laughs> just, great. There's no escaping the homily. <laughs> but the um, also the Justin Martyr's account of the mass in 150 AD, he says, we read from the scriptures and hear, hear expositions from the apostolic ministers as long as time allows. Yep. So they, they just kept going. So we, we're, our modern um, shortness of attention is fairly low. But I don't think you're just talking about having long masses, though, are you? No, no, no. They will go to church for Bible study and they will go to church for Sunday school and they will go to church for men's fellowship and they will go to church for women's fellowship and they will go to church for craft. And they're doing craft. <laughs> so it's a genuine community. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's interesting. I, I've had a couple of interesting exposures. Um, I lived in Ballarat for 20 years, mainly when my children were growing up, and there was a Baptist church at the end of my street. And the Baptist pastor had five children, and that was the only other family with children the age of ours. So our kids became quite friendly. So the kids started to going, going to youth group at the Baptists. And my daughter at the age of 12 made two rather interesting observations. The first was the Baptists take all of scripture literally, except this is my body and this is my blood. <laughs> <laughs> but her other observation was the Catholics are all on about Eucharist and the Baptists are all on about community. Mm. And I said, well, you know, perhaps we should all be on about both. That was the perception of the world. Well. Yeah, well, it's certainly a strong perception. And I became a Catholic in 2001, so I'm kind of not a pre- or a post-Vatican II fan of any particular type of Catholic. I'm just a boring, ordinary, round-the-mill Catholic who's turned up late. Mm. But what I've noticed is that there's a lot of talk about pre-Catholicism which seems to indicate that a huge amount of the community was based around projects such as the schools themselves mm. were a central point of community, St Vincent de Paul or the Legion of Mary or the Antioch groups, and these are all groups which did things together. They, they worked together. Well, as, as a historian, I mean, my inserting into the Catholic Church, uh, my parents came out here in the 1950s as Italian immigrants, so my experience of the Catholic Church is not the Irish model at all. And we had an Italian chaplain in our parish and our lives did revolve around that Italian community. And 
when I made the joke about wanting people to move on after mass because you had to make room in the car park, some of these Italians would hang around and talk outside for the duration of the next mass. Yeah, there's a Portuguese community in my own parish and, and getting them to move on. I mean, it's a ple- it's a good problem to have, but getting them to move on because they love each other and there's a genuine community there. Absolutely. And, you know, 50 years on, during during isolation, some members of that community set up a foodie page. You can look them up on Facebook at is- as Isolation Sensation and... Huh. Some of there's 2,000 members, but about 500 of them trace their roots back to that Italian that community. one parish. Wow, yeah, absolutely. So it can, and you know, one of them even makes jokes about the Italian chaplain we had, and he was a character in himself. You can tend to find this. I mean, I, I when I came to Melbourne uh, originally. Uh, this was 2001-ish, I kept coming across people from a particular group of friends. And when I looked back, it turned out that this group of friends had sat around in a, in a fairly small community um, unpacking the, the works of St Thomas Aquinas and St John of the Cross together over a period of like a, quite a few years. Mm. And as a the content wasn't as important as the fact they shared that journey together and as a result became quite a strong, committed Catholic friendship group. And we've seen it here in Sydney. We had another show with um, Catholic Central, uh, who, which came from a couple of houses of young Catholics who hung out together, had dinner together. So that there's definitely traceable and clearly measurable impacts of these kinds of communities when people set out to do them. But I think, and this came up in the conversation I was having with, you know, Dr. Paul Taylor and the Liturgy Commission, there was, and, and I'm a historian by training, there was in the church in Australia collections of people like the Catholic Young Men's Society and the Catholic Women's Guild, which then evolved into the um, Catholic Women's League and people like Mary Glowry who came through that. But um, one of our prime ministers, and I'm, I'm, I might be wrong here, but I think it was Scullin who was from... Trawalla, just outside of Ballarat, was a trade unionist working as a grocer in Ballarat, and he was a member of the Catholic Young Men's Society, and his wife was wow. a member of the Catholic Social Guild. So they were that's you know it's going back when there was a Catholic unionist who was a sorry a Catholic who was a unionist and who also worked. <laughs> there's a kind of a, there's a kind of a bit of a sorry that was a bit of a dig at unions, but anyway. I shouldn't well, do that. that's the Catholic <laughs> labor background, and you know, it is. It's it is very real. It's very real. Yeah, yeah. I took their faith seriously, and I mean, there's there's all sorts of stories about how Rerum Navarum actually shaped the fledgling Labor Party. They've moved on yes. from there, but you know, <laughs> but yes, they I, have. What I'm saying is, there was a network of Catholics, and I'm yes. not sure that it's a pre-Vatican II or post-Vatican II phenomenon. I think it's more a sort of a car and a technology phenomenon. Well, okay, well, let's explore that a little bit because the car. The motor car seems to have had an impact on many parishes. We've talked about this in the city parishes in particular. If you're in a country town and the nearest nearest other town is 100 miles away, it doesn't seem to affect them as much because everyone in that area pretty much goes to the same church. But when you're in a – like I drive past about eight Catholic parishes to get to the one I actually attend, it seems as if there's several things that happen. One is that people will go further – in terms of jumping parish boundaries to find what they think is their community. But that means I go missing. If I just don't show up one day, 
no one's local to me. People don't know where I live, generally speaking. Unless I've made friendships outside of the the mass and made some sort of community attempt, you know, attempt to build community outside of the mass, I pretty much drop off as soon as I stop making the effort, which is not what we want in the community. No, and I, I, I think I'm also conscious that we're talking about the parish community but when I talk about evangelization, I'm wanting to go beyond that community. And do we, as Catholics, consciously move beyond that community? Now, I'll go back to my Baptist friends. I started going to Baptist Bible study. And I was quite friendly with a lot of the women there. And one of them, um, when I eventually met her, we, we got on very well. And it turns out they moved to Canberra about 10 years before me. And but we've and we've been in touch all along. But lo and behold, she invites me along to Bible study again. <laughs> so They're still they going. But they do. They reach out. Well, the thing is, Clara, that we often think of reaching out as if we have to go further away or look further away. But often, we nobody's asked the guy who lives across the road, or the you know the people who live three doors down, or something like that. But you see, I was quite embarrassed when my children were younger. They had an evangelizing streak. And they said, can we invite the neighbours to, to church? And my feeling was, and what would the neighbours experience if they came to church? That's exactly right. So, I mean, part of it is that we don't understand or perhaps treasure or in some cases the the effort is not really put into what they would experience when they came, not just in terms of the liturgy. I mean, Father Sam had a good point there that you want, you want to show the magnificence and beauty of God in the liturgy. But if, if you have all that magnificence and then someone's grumpy with you, it kind of undermines the message. So, The, the, the funny thing is <laughs> as to how you can evangelise our, na- our neighbours were of, of no faith. I don't know what their background was, but they had two young girls who were, you know, either side in age of my daughter. And so they spent a lot of time together, lovely people. But when it came to Christmas, mum was always keen to get the Christmas tree up as soon as she could, like sometimes it was the <laughs> end of November. But it would come down on Boxing Day. And Caroline said, but you can't take the tree down until the kings come. So there was this conversation with the kids about the kings. That's fantastic. That's a start. So, you know. There is a cultural thing. And and when, I mean, I remember growing up as a Protestant, the only Catholics in town were the ones down the road who were, who used to um, pick on us. And that wasn't a function of Catholicism. That was the fact that they were just, just. the local bullies but it gave us the impression of catholicism and we, we also they didn't go to church so that was our impression oh, of catholics okay. as well mm-hmm. i wonder though what i've noticed in history and maybe I'm, I'm not as much a historian as you are but i've noticed that everything good that's happened has been deliberate planned and not just people wandering along and suddenly oh look we're doing this wonderful thing for christ and we're witnessing to christ almost all of it's been quite deliberate quite focused and quite determined and often against you know against the flow kind of thing yeah look and and you're aware of the sort of work i've been doing and I, i gave a talk here during covid online um and the archbishop said that someone who had heard that talk said to him I didn't know that as a layperson, I shared in Christ, priesthood, prophet, in Christ, in being prophet, priest, and king. 
and that I could bring Christ's message to the world without clearing it with Father or with the Archbishop. <laughs> or, or perhaps that Father and the Archbishop might be delighted if I made the attempt. <laughs> so there's something that's been lost in the translation. And, and you know, the, a lot of the work I do is with helping people discern their baptismal gifts. I mean, most people don't know about their baptismal gifts. Yes. But helping Can I come back? Sorry, Clara, can I just pick you up on that? That's a really important point, the prophet, priest, and king thing. Now, that's that's the, the trifold rule of Christ in, the, in the, the ministry of Christ, which we share in. Of course, we have a prophetic, priestly, and kingly role. It was interesting. Someone reacted to a part of my thesis on masculinity. I was look, unpacking what, what it means to be a Christian man in terms of prophet, priest, and king. Hmm. Um, specifically, I was looking at the prophetic angle, sorry, the priestly angle, and they were, they were kind of saying, well, what about the women? I said, I'm getting most of my teaching on masculinity from the church's writings on women as prophet, priest, and king, mm -hmm. which is magnificent, and they hadn't even heard of this stuff. And it, yeah. I mean, I'm applying it to the sexuality and, and specific gender roles, et cetera, but I'm also hearing it come up a little bit more in evangelization, but you, almost everyone seems surprised by this, that we're called to be in Christ, mm -hmm. to be literally to bring Christ to people. What does that look like? I, on a, on a Monday. What does it look like on a Monday? Well, I'll tell you about Kath. Kath is someone who came along and did called and gifted in a parish in Melbourne. And then I went back to that parish and did something else there. And she said to me, you know, every, she said, I, I have a charism of intercessory prayer. She said, you know, I discovered that, in fact, she discovered that after her husband died. And often life crises bring things to the fore. But what she does, she carries a little book around her with her and she writes in whoever she's praying for and she was in a beachside suburb and every morning she would go for a walk along the beach and then go have a coffee at a local cafe and read the paper and she got to know the locals and the locals started sharing their stories with her and she would say can I pray for you and most people if you offer can I pray for you except in some circumstances in Victoria, uh, would say, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay to have a political dig. I've, I've got some atheist friends who are quite upset by that, but what they don't object to is say, look, for what it's worth, I am praying for you. Hmm. They don't mind that I'm doing it um, hmm. or, you know, you, will you thank you for the thought kind of thing. They're, they're touched by it. But she prays for people and she told me the story of a woman who shared with her that her she was having trouble getting her teenage daughter to go to school because she was being bullied. And this girl sort of, when she was woken up in the morning, would sink deeper under the blankets and pull the covers over her head and say, I'm not going. So Kath offered to pray for her. A week or so later, she runs into mum again and she says, so how's it going with your daughter? And she said, I don't know what you've done. But she went off to school and she's really happy. <laughs> so, and that's the other thing. We actually, I'm really uncomfortable saying this, but we actually don't believe that God answers our prayers. We're a little bit surprised when he actually answers us, aren't we? He does. I don't think Kat <laughs> was surprised, but I think a lot of people are very tentative about asking. One of my spiritual directors told me off because I was being far too general and vague in my prayers. You know, you know God's will be done. All this sort of, and he mm -hmm. said, well, you're not writing a horoscope. Be specific. 
ask for something specifically. Uh, are you scared that perhaps God will just ignore you? Now, he may not answer you the way you want, but are you saying that you know either you believe in prayer or you're wasting your time? So get on with it. Having said that, there's um there's two two points that came to mind as you said that. The first one was one of the most successful youth ministries I'm aware of in the United States in terms of uh, from a Protestant perspective wasn't one that had a program. It was one where they sought out members of parishes who weren't at all involved in the youth. In fact, they deliberately sought out people who didn't have any connection with youth, and they asked them just to commit to meeting once a week and praying for the youth. And that's all they asked them to do. Oh, and those older older people and, and married people, all these people who weren't involved in youth got together, and they did it. They promised to. They got together, and they started praying. And then after a couple of weeks, they went, what are we praying for specifically? And then that meant they had to go and ask the young people, firstly, what their names were. The second thing was what to pray for and what the circumstances were that were interesting to them. And very shortly afterwards, suddenly, these young people started coming to church more because there were people there who took an interest in them, knew their name, actually cared, were actively trying to contribute in a way they could to their their struggles and, their, and they felt like they could talk to them. Suddenly, it created a situation where Christians praying for each other transformed the relationship and the community. Hmm. The second thing I wanted to say is that the the ancient motto "ora et labora" has to apply here. Mm. That that the whole there's a little bit of critique in the states, especially when a disaster happens, of people who say, "Oh, my thoughts and prayers are with you," but they actually don't do anything about it. Mm. <laughs> so we've uh, we've got to pray and work. There's yeah. there's work involved in Christian love. And it, can you say a little bit about that? How how our actions need to sort of back up the prayer. Well, they do. And and I think even in the Benedictine tradition, our, our work is also prayer. But right. I, I, I come back to people identifying and using their gifts and it's through doing things. You know, if you have this woman I know who has a gift of mercy, she's always asked for furniture, for bedding, for and she works for St Vincent de Paul, and if you need something, you know to ask her, and she'll deliver. <laughs> There's a, a couple of funny stories relating to this woman, but I'll keep them for another day. But, you know, she, she is a magnet for people who are in need because they know they will receive what they need from her. And from some, some perspectives, people might see her as a soft touch, but what actually means, if, if people know they can go there for mercy, mm. for help. That's un, like that's un, the grat gratuitous and all that sort of thing. Mm. What a wonderful witness to Christ's own Absolutely. love! Absolutely, and that's what we have to do. We have to witness to what we believe. And look, I I, I can theorise about a whole lot of things, but I, I worry about the way in which we run our businesses, where you know everything uh, we treat the workers for the sake of the economy rather than the economy being for workers. And it would be nice to see Christian businesses doing things differently. And having said that, everyone can go out and buy Lover Duck for dinner. There's a company in Nil in Western Victoria which processes ducks. This company, really? Nil, yeah, that they were they were the subject of a Four Corners or a Seven Thirty really? Court or something years ago. They settled refugees from Myanmar, Karin refugees from Myanmar who were working, processing the ducks. 
but they also enabled a whole lot of farms to grow ducks for processing in this factory. But but the <laughs> factory had its own Korean ethnic Korean soccer team. <laughs> and the people who run this company are actually Catholics and they do have a social justice view. Yep, ethos. Look, I think, that, Clara, that's that's a subject for a whole other podcast, which I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not saying stop talking about it now, but we need to have a whole long discussion about Catholics in business because we seem to have accepted, uh, and this perhaps it definitely is a different discussion because we seem to have accepted, drunk the Kool-Aid, if you like, that firstly that debt is the way that economies work uh, and that, that it's completely fine for the banks and, and others to screw everyone else over for interest. And the second thing we seem to have accepted is that it's completely fine to treat employees according to how much value they bring to the business exactly. instead of their inherent dignity as a human person. We see that as a kind of a luxury extra when we've got enough money to do it. Those things, perhaps that's that's to, to, at least today, let's limit it to the, the way we bring Christ into the workplace. That means that the way we bring Christ into the workplace means to be against the flow to treat people with dignity. And when it, when the law and otherwise would other practices might say that we would treat them differently. And so when we come to Aura et Labora, the first thing every Christian can ask themselves is how do I bring Christ into my workplace, whether I'm a manager or a worker on the assembly line, whether I'm a bus driver, whether I'm a, a teacher in the classroom, etc. And I think if we began to examine how we did that, we would find ways of being more effective in placing Christ in those situations. That's a fantastic point at which to to sort of wrap up today's discussion. So we're going to, we've, we've already flagged, we've got at least two other programs out of this coming up. So we'll have to hunt you down, Clara, to talk about that. I'd love to talk to you about Mondragon Corporation and what well, their history was and, and what they got up to. But we can't do it today because we're right. out of time. So, But that's it for today's podcast. If today's discussion got you arguing with us or thinking about it, please let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Discord. Just look for thiscatholiclife.com.au and our black and white logo there. Remember to write us a review, especially on iTunes. This is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. But that's all for now. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. <laughs>